Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Alex Kruger, the International Managing Editor of The New Statesman. It's Monday, the 6th of June, and you're listening to World Review, a current affairs podcast from The New Statesman. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique combination of insight and expertise. And every Wednesday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant developments in world affairs. My guest today is Deirdre Finity. She's a journalist for the BBC and the author of Bessborough, Three Women, Three Decades, Three Stories of Courage. The book, which is a bestseller in Ireland, tells the story of Irish women who became pregnant outside marriage. They were sent to mother and baby homes and forced to give up their children for adoption. Dear Drafinity, thank you for joining me. This sounds like something from another age, but it's, it's actually really recent, isn't it? It is really, really recent. And I think a lot of women my age in Ireland, women in their 30s, women in their 20s, didn't actually realise how recent it was. I started off researching this book as an article for the BBC. um, And I looked into one mother and baby institution. And what I hadn't realised at the time is that that particular mother and baby institution stayed open until the late 90s. So we're talking 98, 99. So... Actually, you know, I I did actually come across people born in this institution who were born in 92, 93. So, you know, they're still only in their 20s. So I think when people read the book, that's one of the aspects that they find kind of most surprising, I suppose, because Ireland wasn't unique in having mother and baby institutions. We know they existed here in the UK. We know they existed in other countries in Europe and around the world. But what's different in the Irish context is that the institutions remained open for so much longer, while in other countries they were largely gone by the 70s. So that's kind of why it's such a big lasting issue in Ireland and why its legacy continues and why why there's still kind of so many unresolved issues and so many things to talk about that, that kind of keep cropping up in Ireland today. So you focused on this one institution, Bessborough, which is just outside the city of Cork. Yes. What did you find when you saw it for the first time? What kind of impression did it make? So... I remember going there for the first time and it was a drizzly kind of November day and I it's not very easy to kind of get in there if you if you don't have a connection with it. So I visited it with somebody whose brother was born in Bessborough and who at that time didn't know where her brother was buried, but she knew that he'd been born in Bessborough. So I was interviewing her for a piece I was doing for the BBC, but because she's allowed to kind of 
go to the small little graveyard that there is on the grounds. She took me in and showed me around and I had a look at the house. I mean, and the house itself, when you see it, it's quite grand. It's, you know, this kind of old Georgian mansion. It's three stories. It's got cut stone windows. Its walls are kind of a very brown grey. It's quite imposing and it's well preserved. I mean, you know, it does <laughs> does have signs of wear and tear, but it does look like quite an imposing grand country mansion. And it's still in operation now. So, you know, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, wow, this kind of wasn't what I was expecting. I was expecting maybe something that was maybe a little bit more dilapidated, that wasn't in use today and the grounds are very well kept. It still retains lots of its estate. But, you know, certainly walking around, I just felt that, you know, I could see in the small little graveyard there were little gifts left. There were kind of tiny mementos, um, candles, small little baby shoes. You know, people were kind of coming there in their own personal little pilgrimages to pay their respects to children and relatives who had died. And you could see that there was a lot of unresolved stuff around around Bespar and around the grounds and around its whole legacy. You say that the woman that you went there with, Mm. her brother Mm -hmm. died. Mm -hmm. So this would have been her mother gave birth in, in the home. Yes. How many children, how many babies We're died in these homes? Mm-hmm. Do we know? So what we know is certainly in Bespera, about... 9,000 children, they think, were born there in the years it was in operation. So we're talking, you know, more than seven decades. So, you know, it was in operation from 1922 until the late 90s. So they think over that period of time, about 9,000. A commission of investigation was set up to investigate practices in the whole system of mother and baby institutions in Ireland. And they found in Bespera alone that the burial places of at least 859 children remain unknown. So it's so nearly the question. a thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that are unknown. Mm-hmm. And then there are some that are known. Yes. So the Commission of Investigation released its final report of a five year inquiry. And in it, it found that about 15% of infants born in mother and baby institutions in Ireland died. So what it actually said was in the years before 1960, mother and baby homes did not save the lives of illegitimate children. In fact, they appear to have significantly reduced their prospects of survival. So that was one of the conclusions. And yeah, I mean, Bespera isn't the only institution where children lie in unmarked graves or it's, or it's not known where they're buried. You know, there's, there's thousands probably across the country and people just, just don't know where they're buried. And, you know, I've, I've met a couple of women who had been through Bespera and, and they still don't know. They still can't get any conclusion. They still don't have an answer. There's no specific place they can go to where they can say, OK, my child died, but this is where I can lay flowers or this is where I can remember them. They they just don't have that. So this is why the legacy continues and this is why people are still hurting. So your book focuses mm-hmm. on the stories of three women yes. in three different decades who were there. Mm. How difficult was it to find these women and to persuade them to talk to you? So it wasn't easy. I began researching a BBC article I would say in kind of late 2018. And the first person I spoke to who had been through Bespera, who told me about her experience, I actually met her in London. She lives in a flat in, in West London. She still has her Irish accent, but after she she was in Bespera in 1960. After that, she left Ireland and has lived here ever since. But she, when I met her, she was very nervous. She's a lovely lady, but she just didn't want to give me her name. 
She wanted to speak anonymously. She didn't want her neighbours or her friends in Ireland to find out because she never told them. So she still lives with that shame and she wouldn't be the only one in that situation. Is that Joan in the book? That isn't Joan in the book. So the the person I met in London, she's she's mentioned in the book. She's not one of the main contributors, but it was it was getting to know the the people in the Bespur community. And once I got to know them and built built their trust, I got to know other people. And eventually I got to know the three absolutely incredible women who are in the book, Joan, Terry and Deirdre, who gave their identities for the book, who had campaigned, who had spoken out in the past. And they would speak out because they know so many other women who don't want to or don't feel in a position to and just or just are too fragile to. So, you know, I'm really grateful to them because just because they're very strong individuals doesn't mean it's not hard for them every time they talk about it. So, yeah, I mean, I think they've done us a huge service. You know, they've talked about the long term impact of being in a mother and baby institution in their lives. And I think when people read the book, that's what they find the most interesting about it, that it didn't end. You know, it's something that's ongoing, that they're still affected by today, even though they're amazingly strong, courageous campaigners that, you know, it still has that impact and it still has that impact on thousands of women and thousands of people in Ireland today as well. So let's hear a bit from Joan's story now. In bed that evening, Joan couldn't settle. She felt agitated, a tugging pain beginning in her abdomen. Her waters broke, the pain intensified and she shuffled downstairs to tell the matron. Please, I'm in so much pain. Can I have something? Unmoved, the matron led her into a tiny room. Looking at it, Joan understood why the girls had nicknamed it the cell. You'll stay here until you're ready to deliver. Joan heard the click of the key in the lock. Surely they're not going to leave me in here on my own, she thought. Sometime after 8pm the door opened. Please, just give me something for the pain, she asked again. Absolutely not. You've done the devil's work. Across the corridor, Joan could see the delivery room. Doubled over, she struggled to reach it. With a final push, the baby emerged. It's a boy, said a voice she didn't recognise. There was a pause and Joan heard her son cry for the first time. And this is Terry's story. I shouldn't be here, Terry said. I want to leave. Sister Paul wasn't angry. Her mouth curled up at the edges, almost as if she was amused. What are you talking about? You're being looked after here. You'll have your baby here and I will oversee the adoption. There are plenty of lovely families lining up. It's my baby, Terry said. I just want to keep my child. No, that's out of the question. Just think about it. Where are you going to live? How are you going to provide for this child? You should be thankful. Why should I be thankful, Terry thought. She never asked to come here, never asked to be shut away from everyone, scrubbing pots and pans from one end of the day to the next. But she stopped herself. She knew she couldn't lose her temper with a nun. And this is Deirdre's story. Come take a look at him, said Deirdre, guiding her parents into the nursery, until she stopped in front of her son's cot. Her father smiled. He's a grand little fella. Her mother said nothing, her face inscrutable. After a few minutes, they turned to go and Deirdre knew it was over, her eyes filling with hot tears. One of the nuns led her into a small room to sign the first set of papers giving him up for adoption. She walked into the courtyard to say goodbye to the other girls. One of them, Orla, gave her a brief hug before pressing a note into her hand. A brave soldier never looks back, it read. There was a smiley face at the bottom. Orla was right, Deirdre thought. 
Paul was staying behind in the home and she wouldn't be able to get him back. The only thing she could do now was to try to put everything out of her mind. But she never imagined it would be so hard. So what has been the long-term impact on these women and on the children who were born in these homes and may not even know it today? Mm-hmm. I think one of the women kind of articulates this very clearly in the book. She says that she was living for many years with a lasting trauma, that she'd be triggered by things. She had a sort of a PTSD, but she didn't really know what it was because it happened to her in the 70s you know, at a time where people didn't speak openly about mental health or about mother and baby institutions in Ireland. So she said it was only in her 40s that she started to realise what the actual impact was on her and that she started to be able to kind of have devices and tools to help her to deal with it. And she said when she started to speak out, that also helped her when she met others in her situation. But that took decades because she felt the shame and she didn't want to talk to other people. She didn't reach out and other people weren't reaching out. So, you know, certainly for the women there in the earlier decades, it, it was a very lonely grief and a very lonely time. And... There wasn't help, there wasn't sort of any way for them to deal with this, apart from a very private grief. And then, you know, the woman who was there in the 1980s, Deirdre, she talked very openly about the impact it had on her relationships and her parenting. And she was very open that she felt that when she had other children, that she kind of overcompensated, particularly with her first child. And she had two marriages that broke down and she still feels like she has ups and downs now and times where she feels she needs to go back to counselling. But later on in her life, she got into an abusive relationship and she would link that to the feelings of shame and inadequacy that she had. So that kind of comes out very clearly in the book where she speaks very eloquently about a time she went to speak to a counsellor and a counsellor helped her unpick all of that. But that didn't happen again until she was in her 40s. So... I think the lasting impact has been, you know, a very lonely journey and a very lonely private grief and trauma. How did the homes change over the decades? So in the 1960s, the atmosphere there seemed to be quite harsh. People wore uniforms. The way the woman in the book describes it, Joan, she described kind of long hours doing very kind of heavy physical work. The women and girls there didn't even really speak to each other or form relationships or anything like that. They all had to use kind of cover names, false names. names. Yeah, and I mean, that continued on right up until the 80s because it was thought that it was better to conceal your identity because you didn't want anyone finding out that this had happened to you. Then by the 70s, you'd see things like the uniform had gone... Terry's descriptions of atmosphere are still quite cold, but it's still not quite as bad as in the 60s. And then in the 80s, what Deirdre described was an atmosphere that was much softer. So she was a university student. So she went to Bessborough, but she used to have time to study in the mornings because she had her exams coming up. And yeah, I mean, that's a lot different from the 1960s. But even she would still say that, yes, it was much softer, but the outcome was essentially the same because she ended up losing her children. So for her, while it might have been kinder and softer, she doesn't really see that much of a difference. And she herself, you know, she used a cover name. She used the name Kira, even though her name was Deirdre. And that was quite common still right into the 80s. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week. 
That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things I noticed when reading the book was that it was so focused on the stories of these three women. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to hear about the official response. And then I got to the final chapter. Mm. And it's absolutely devastating. The kind of whitewash of it, the minimization of what went on. Can you just summarize what was in that official report Mm -hmm. and how it came about? So for anyone who doesn't know, an independent investigation was set up that lasted six years, I suppose, to investigate practices in mother and baby institutions in Ireland. And it was set up in response to the two mother and baby institution that people listening might have heard of that. It was where a mass grave was discovered in a mother and baby institution in Ireland, 
with 900 children and it became a kind of a very international story that made headlines in 2014. So as a response to that, an independent inquiry was set up called the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Institutions. So it was investigating TUM, but also lots of other mother and baby institutions, including Bessborough, which remained open for a lot longer than TUM. So that's the context to that. So as part of the Commission of Investigation, women like the women in my book came forward. People adopted from the homes as children came forward. Members of the religious orders involved in the homes came forward, social workers. It was run by historians and legal experts to try and really get to the bottom of what had happened. However, the Commission of Investigation released its final report just last year in 2021. So again, this is how recent these things are in Ireland. But it came to the conclusion that there was no evidence of forced adoption, which caused huge controversy among survivors groups and obviously really upset the women who were in my book. So they took a very legalistic view. The bar of evidence, they said, had to be really high. But it later emerged that the way the commission was set up, they had two branches. So one was an investigative branch where people had to appear before a judge and swear an oath and they were robustly questioned. So two women in my book took that option. There was also a confidential committee where people weren't cross-examined by a judge, but they could submit written evidence or they could come in and appear in person and people would take a record of their testimony. But what happened was is that Over 500 testimonies of the confidential committee weren't used to inform the findings of the Commission of Investigation because they weren't sworn before a judge. But a lot of people who had gone to the confidential committee didn't necessarily know that that was going to happen. So basically, the Commission's findings are based on a very small number of testimonies given to the investigative committee. So the question is, I suppose, is a Commission of Investigation which isn't intended to lead to a criminal inquiry. It isn't intended to allow for civil proceedings or anything like that. The question is, is that a suitable tool to deal with issues like this, where you have survivors who are looking for a way of truth telling and, you know, you have people who want to tell their story and put it on record and to feel believed So I think that is where the conversation is at now as to whether that was the right thing to do and whether that will continue to happen in the future, because there's been, as you can imagine, huge controversy over this in Ireland. And it's certainly upset many survivors groups. Because the mothers who did give up their children, most of them did actually sign papers so that, you know, their Mm. signature would be on a document saying Mm -hmm. I give up my child. But it wasn't given without a certain degree of pressure or coercion? So that's also quite complicated because a lot of the women that I would have spoken to would have said that they didn't give their children up freely for adoption, that their children were placed for adoption and that they didn't have their consent. And also a couple of the women I've spoken to said there are signatures on papers, but they're not my signature. The commission obviously found a different conclusion. And Deirdre in the book, she did sign papers and it's very clear that and she's very open about it. But she said, I signed papers, but it wasn't what I wanted, but I didn't feel like I had any other choice. So it's about whether state, church and society created an atmosphere in which there was free choice. And certainly the woman in the book would say that there wasn't. 
So the change that has come about in Ireland, the attitude towards these mother and baby homes, what does that say about the changing attitude towards the role of church, of the church in society? Because it did control a lot of, mm-hmm. of institutions. Yeah. So the response to the book, younger people have been really interested in what went on. Somebody messaged me. She was in her 20s. She read it. She said, I couldn't believe that this was going on. Whereas, you know, older generations would say, well, I can believe it. <laughs> I can definitely believe this. And then, you know, people people from older generations would message me and say, well, yes, I totally believe this because this is what happened to me. Or and I've had a lot of people getting in touch, sharing their stories. But certainly Ireland is a completely different place now to what it was. And the pace of change has been so rapid and so quick that, you know, sometimes I live here in London, but sometimes I go and I go back very often, but sometimes I go back and I'm like, whoa, it's just so different from the country that I grew up in. And I I just can't believe how different things are and how different things are for young people now. And it's really kind of positive to see. But, you know, I think there's many more conversations ahead. So, Yeah, it's a very interesting time, I think, for the country. And I think certainly the last few referenda that we've seen in the country as well has really... On abortion. Yes, on abortion, on gay marriage, has really shown a radical shift in where attitudes are. Where does the conversation go from here? Where does the debate in Ireland go from here? This is going to take decades to work out, isn't it? So it's interesting. If you speak to some survivor groups, they'll say... Well, everybody's trying to talk about memorialization now and how do we remember this history? But for us, it isn't history while we don't have all the answers that we need. So let's try and sort that out before we start talking about any of the other stuff. Then there are other people who are saying this is part of our living history and we need to start memorializing it now. And we need to start thinking about how we have a national museum, how we organize records, how we kind of integrate this as, as into part of our national story. There's also conversations going on about how we would put this on school curriculum and how we would teach it. Like, for example, when I was growing up in Ireland, I never learned anything about this kind of thing. So, yeah, I think we're at a very interesting time. And I think it's 100 years since Bespra opened and it's 100 years as well since we had the Free State in 1922. So, It's just the past few years have been a very interesting time for reflection about who we are as a society, what our values are, what we need to learn from and how we should move on. Did Refinity, thank you. That's all for this episode of World Review. If you've enjoyed it, please like, rate or review us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.